0: One theory of preaching has it that the preacher should write a sermon with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Well, folks, I don't think my arms are long enough today to do such a thing for fear of spontaneous combustion should the words in the good book get too close to the bad words in the newspaper headlines these last couple of days. It would be as easy as shooting fish in a barrel to preach with moral certitude about what's going on in the election campaign this fall. But I am also reminded of a second theory of preaching that's more important. That the preacher preaches to the congregation before whom he or she stands searching and probing for what the writers of the New Testament would in Greek call metanoia. That change of heart that must come about in us, our turning, our repentance, that is part and parcel for resurrection to become a current reality in our lives. And thus we get to today's topic, the unchanged heart. Now, in the election campaign, we've seen a lot of unchanged hearts. Democrats fear Republicans, and Republicans fear Democrats, and both sides seem to fear the end of the world if the opponent is elected. Politicians play on such fear, and they raise vast sums of money from it. And yes, the church has been known to play on that fear as well. Way too many stewardship campaigns, or whatever they were called in the Middle Ages, have relied on fear of a future in hell and how a gift can assuage God. If we turn to Jerusalem in the first century, that melting pot of culture, that crossroads of trade between east and west, we paradoxically find a similar situation. A polyglot city with a fear of strangers. A city with an unchanged heart. You might remember that at the crucifixion of Jesus, the Bible reports that a sign was posted in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew proclaiming who he was, the king of the Jews. The languages that were used were indicative of the many cultures in that city. What is not in the Bible, however, is perhaps the more telling sign that had been posted. It was a sign also in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and it was over the gate to the temple in Jerusalem. A portion of that sign remains in a the museum there. A very free translation of that sign is as follows. No non-Jew is permitted to pass beyond this boundary point. Anyone who does, does so at his own risk and will be liable to the death penalty. You might well be asking what that sign has to do with today's gospel about ten lepers being made clean and one returning. Well, here's the connection. In the Greek inscription on that temple sign, the word used for a non-Jew foreigner was alogenes, literally someone of another seed. Now you've heard two Greek words today in the sermon, metanoia and alogenes. The job of the custodian of the temple was to keep out the Alleghenies. Such an ill-bred foreigner had no place in Judah's religious life. The religious people of the day were fearful of the Eleganese who might be in their midst. Now doesn't that sound very 21st century? That word, alaganes, is used only once in all of the New Testament. And you heard it today in translation when Luke recorded in Greek what Jesus said about the tenth leper. Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this alaganes, this foreigner, as it's translated. Jesus asks that question as he is walking on his way to Jerusalem, as Luke tells us, where he would see the elegant sign. The one who recognized God's love that changed lives was this half-breed Samaritan who was not allowed to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem, where God supposedly dwelt in a golden box called the tabernacle. Though the people of the day were afraid to allow the foreigner to get too near to God. God was apparently not afraid to get near them. The divine, in the form of Jesus, was willing to walk in the countryside and show the eleganese, the foreigner, how to find help. Fear had no place in Jesus' life. If it had, he would not have been traveling, as our gospel tells us, on the border of Galilee and Samaria, sort of like crossing back and forth along the dried-up Rio Grande River between the United States and Mexico. The gospels telling us that the person whom we may see as the stranger, the one of whom we are most likely to be afraid, is the very person who exhibits and shows forth the love of God. We hold on to our lives and our possessions and our loyalties as if, if they are in some sort of safety deposit box that we keep secure from the dangers of the world, as if they're hidden in a tabernacle. All the while that we worry about what we have and what we stand for, God's running through the world bringing help to the foreigner, while we too often refuse to turn around to see what we're missing. Now, as that letter to Timothy that we heard read today reminds us, the word of God is not changed, it's not locked up, it's not hidden. It is instead alive, changing and sustaining people. As the gospel reminds us, when exclusion is eliminated, when boundaries are crossed, health, wholeness, salvation, it all becomes real. In the gospel, the foreigner finds wholeness. In the gospel, Jesus is walking on the borderland. That's where he will be seen by someone who turns around to take a look. And in that the gospel is still speaking to us, the message is coming through loud and clear that we need that metanoia. We need that turning around so that we can see what form the resurrected Christ might surprisingly be taking in our midst. What got this story into the gospel of Luke is that the outsider sees God in a way that the insider does not. That lesson is preparing its readers for the day when that sign in the temple, sort of like signs for whites only or birth sex only restrooms, would find itself in a museum. I wonder what it would be like to plunge the Bible into the very messiness of the newspaper, finding where Jesus really is inside his pages. Is he in the face of our political opponent? Is he in the face of all those people arrested for burglary or assault whose mug shots are placed in the column beside the list of their alleged crimes? Is he in the face of the vain publicity hungry Hollywood types we see with such large photos? You know, here may be the true secret and power of Christianity. If we start seeing the risen Christ in those people, and treating them as such, then they might start to experience wholeness in ways they have never before imagined. To see the risen Christ in others is to offer them the same chance at health as Jesus offered to ten lepers. And if only one-tenth of them gives thanks, it's still worthwhile to do saved. You may remember that those old European maps of the known world often had inscriptions near the edge of the map to scare people from going too far by stating in one form or another, beyond here there be monsters. Sort of like you'll be liable to death if you cross this boundary. But we Christians know that that's exactly what we're called to do. To turn around, to repent, To cross boundaries, to die to what we once knew, and to be resurrected to a new way of living, so that the others who stand on the edge, those so-called monsters, can find resurrection as well. And when that happens, well, the Bible and the newspaper might both be caught up in a holy flame. Amen.